1: Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and other Oddities. the show where Emily and I read the Bible. uh, we try to talk about it, apparently. This is what our third start
2: <laughs> It's a long day, and it's not even what ten in the morning yet yeah,
1: it's, it's nine forty seven <laughs> here where we are right now, so um, I
2: need more sleep.
1: need to get you some more coffee or something.
2: I've only had one pot this morning
1: yeah we're we're just gonna start out behind the scenes today. Um, <laughs> But this, this is the it's, kind of thing you're, you're here for, right?
2: I hope so. Cause I mean, yeah, it's, uh, we've just been chaotic at our house. And so I'm like trying to focus on stuff and it's like, oh, it's Friday. It's time to record. I need to get in the groove and I don't think I've managed it yet. So well, part of that's you know. your
1: own fault for getting a dog.
2: Well, he's cute. And no, he's, he's actually, he's the easiest part of my life right now. If that gives you any indication, it's a eight week, eight week old puppy and he's the easiest thing. So, <laughs> but I, I,
1: well, from what you've told me, he sounds like he's a pretty smart animal.
2: He, he is. He's already going to the door. He woke me up. Uh, he came to my bed last night at two o'clock in the morning to be let out. So, you know, for eight weeks, I'm calling that a win. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah doesn't get much better than that and you know and if only people were as easy to train as dogs i think life would be easier well for me anyway so
1: <laughs> understandable <laughs> well um anyway uh speaking of training s- people <laughs> i guess so i am not sure how we segue out of that but we have bible to talk about
2: well you know the bible is just god um training people to uh have a better relationship with uh, with him so um Anyway, uh yeah, so we're in chapter twenty one of second Samuel. We, uh, we talked a little bit of the first verse that um, there'd been a famine in the land and it had been for three years. We talked about how chapter twenty one through twenty four is kind of a an epilogue to the rest of um, second Samuel, and so the stories in this part of the book are not in chronological order they we know that that's about all we know. We don't know when things happened and um we're going to talk about why that's important and how that plays into trying to decipher some of the things that are going on. But the stories are arranged in a chiastic structure. So you've got this chiasm, this um, where the end stories, the beginning and the end, mirror each other and then the next sections mirror each other until you finally get to that central point. And so uh, I just want to remind people that we're going to be going through this this last part a little differently than what we would normally do. We're not going to do a linear run chapters 21 through 24. We're actually going to do the first part of chapter 21. And when we get through here, we're going to go over to chapter 24 and look at that. And we're going to pull these these mirroring sections of that chiasm together. So we can kind of see if that helps answer some of the questions because everything in these four chapters I think is disturbing. And I'm not talking like. Disturbing as in blood and gore or sex and violence, I'm talking about disturbing from the perspective of it messes with our ideas of the Bible not contradicting itself. It messes with our ideas of um, inerrancy. And oh, these are the parts that you may have missed if you grew up in a very conservative fundamentalist church where you don't talk about those issues, where you just accept that God's word is perfect. And so you can't examine these things. So we're going to talk about them. And what do we do with them while still honoring the Bible?
1: Yeah. And um, that, that's a lot of stuff that I think is very interesting and I want to talk about. But uh, before we jump into this, one of the things I want to recommend, if you're not familiar with chiastic structure, um, go check out—the um, Bible Project has a series called How to Read the Bible. I just recommend the whole series. It's really good. Mm-hmm. But they do talk about chiastic structure and how um, how it works, mm-hmm. but they also have some really good visual representations going along as they talk about it because they are an animation studio, um, so it, they have a lot of really good visuals that that bring it together. It's hard to really talk about and explain everything when you're on an audio format,
0: and then right. also
1: um, you know, we're not really uh, that dynamic visually here. Um, <laughs> we you know. <laughs> If you're tuned into YouTube for great action shots, I, I don't know, you know, you're probably on a different channel anyway. I be
2: good to get my makeup on.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but yeah, go check out, um, go check that out. I'll try to find the one on chiasm's, and we'll get it in the uh, the show notes at some point. Um, so some anyone point. wanting to to look at that can uh, can have a a good way to, to to visualize the way those are put together.
2: And we did talk about them some when we talked about um, Ishmael and Isaac and the Akeda and all of that. So we this is, should be a somewhat familiar topic to our mm-hmm. listeners, but um, you know, and just maybe as a bit of a, a little bit of a teaser, you might go back and re-listen to some of that stuff about the Akeda and Isaac and Ishmael because uh, it might come into play here, but it's going to be a little way. So anyway. Uh, we're going to pick up with verse 2, and basically, when David had uh, gone to seek God, um, try to figure out what was going on with the famine, uh, God had said that Saul had killed the Gibeonites, was basically what he said. There's a, there was an issue with that, and um, that there was blood guilt on the house of Saul. So, verse 2, David calls to the Gibeonites to speak to them, and I, I think um, This immediately calls into question. Now, we talked about Zamora had suggested that maybe this had happened even before David was a king. Now, the verse, I'm trying not to sneeze here if you're wondering why I'm doing. Uh, (laughs) The verse says uh, that the king called to the Gibeonites. So I think that calls into question Zamora's idea that this happens before David's king. Uh, It doesn't completely rule out the possibility. Uh, I mean, even when people are, are known for a particular thing, something that may have happened before or after, I mean, like say somebody's president. Uh, so if you're referring to an event before they became, were elected or even after they were elected, you might probably still call them president, you know, whatever. Uh, so it's, it, it doesn't, like I it doesn't rule out the possibility, but I think it, it's kind of, I don't know, it makes me doubt. So, but we're still left with some major questions. Uh, This one being basically if this happened if Saul was the one who killed the Gibeonites why is David having to deal with the fallout and why is this an issue that David's having to take care of so we're going to put that on pause and we're going to continue reading and we're going to we're going to keep trying to get to the bottom of this because there's a lot of pieces here that um, we just haven't got good answers for with a very surface reading Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnants of the Amorites. So it's interesting that the writer takes a moment to very specifically tell us these are not Israelites, they're not people of you know David's nation. They are remnants of the Amorites. And he gets very, you know, he wants you to know this. He you need to have this in your head. This is going to become something that's important in the story. Anytime the author takes time. To make these, these very specific points, we need to be paying attention. Because if you remember in the rest of Samuel, whenever you get these introductions to different nations and different people with these kind of nationalistic identifiers, we aren't always given this kind of background information. There's not always a specification. There's a lot of questions among some of our heroes even, whether or not they're Israelites who lived in the area where these other people had lived previously, or if they are you know, an Amorite or whatever. So this is very interesting that now we've got this, this clarification and, um, you know, and it kind of makes sense too, from the idea that the Amorites or the, the Gideon, Gibeonites, they had lived with the Israelites ever since the Canaanite conquest. And I remember back, we talked about the, the Canaanite conquest. Joshua had, um, made this oath with them. So if they had been living alongside um, the Israelites for this long, some of the Israelites may have forgotten, hey, they aren't part of our nation. They're they're outsiders. So to to stop and make this distinction could be very important. And then you've got the Amorites. Well, you got to remember who the Amorites are. The Amorites are uh, one of the people groups that originally the children of Israel were told that you have to drive out of Canaan. They were not supposed to stay in Canaan, and the Gibeonites had fooled Joshua into letting them stay. And so um, this is one of those moments where we're getting a lot of information that requires us knowing some background and some history to put into place. And it also helps understand helps us understand maybe why Saul, would have decided that this was an appropriate action. They're not us. They're other. They're outsiders. They don't belong here. We okay. we need to purge the land. So continuing on, and it says, although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul sought to strike them down from his seal from for the people. Sorry, down in his seal for the people of Israel and Judah. So we have the allusion to the oath that Joshua had made, um, which is why.
1: And, you know, I, I find it interesting. I, I'm, I'm going to uh, latch on to something here, and I'm not sure if you were planning to go on this. Um, okay. But it says, in his zeal for the people of Israel. Mm-hmm. Okay, so really interesting. This is kind of a, one of those weird stories that is, uh, I don't really tell, tell these very often. Uh, okay. Not, not this type of story. So shortly after Mickey and I got married, we were trying to find a a church to plug into. And during that time, it was very, there was a very popular sermon message going around that I had heard uh, well, I say very popular, I I had heard it more than once from various places that basically this idea, and it's very popular in charismatic circles, that it's kind of this, this, you know, we have to have zeal if we're going to accomplish what we want to accomplish, and it doesn't matter if we're doing it right or wrong, as long as we have zeal. But the Lord's going to bless our plans. So it's really funny about this. So this particular morning, and and you know, if, if anyone wants to ask, I can, Mickey can, uh, can verify this. We got there early. We chatted with a few people. Um, we didn't realize apparently they had changed their service times, so we were. We kind of had some time I was sitting out in the lobby and I was just kind of writing in my journal a little bit and got to reflecting on how much I get really irritated by this whole message that's basically it ain't what you do it's the way that you do it um which is <laughs> you know great song but terrible theology right uh, <laughs> so um and then that same day literally right after writing this we go into the service. And that is exactly what the message is about. The pastor was, the entire message was about zeal. And I get, and I'm looking at this and I'm going, you know, it's kind of funny here. We've had at least two examples where someone's, where someone's zeal has kind of put them in a bad position. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you got Saul, mm-hmm. uh, just now. Um, cause to me, it seems like, he just kind of went overboard with what he was doing, is what I hear in this message. And mm-hmm. then you have David bringing the ark back. You know, mm-hmm. um, he he let himself and and I'm not trying to just be like anti-emotional or you know because right. I, I know that emotions play a part in being human, and there's a good way to express them, and there's a wrong way to express them. But it seems like there's a couple times here when the Bible's talking about zeal that uh, really bad things are happening. <laughs>
2: Well, we're, we're supposed to be in control of our emotions. Our emotions are not supposed to control us.
1: So, um, thought I, oh, well, that's okay. But, you know, I just, I find it interesting that, um, that that was such a popular message for, for a time that, mm-hmm. that whenever you actually look at the example, couple of uh, these examples, and, and I'm, I'm wondering if there's more. And of, of course, the, the passage of the person used, I, I know we'll get to it, is the the one where the prophet told the king to strike the ground and mm-hmm. he tells him, well, if you would have struck it more times, then you would have gotten this or, you know, anything else. Because we don't, we you know, basically, you know, anyway. Then, of course, he use the lukewarm Christian analogy, and uh, but we should move well, on. <laughs> oh, but no, I,
2: I think I think this really does, it plays into, because... When you when you were trying to figure out when this happened and and why did it happen? Because you know we're we're not told anything other than this this Saul has his seal for the people of Israel and Judah and you know it's a very unsatisfactory answer really. I mean uh, I I suddenly just want to go kill people because I love my people so much. I mean that that's just ridiculous and is so counter to everything that we've been shown before, um, and especially when they're living probably you know as far as we know peaceably among Israel, uh, the israelites and and they're actually working bringing wood and water for the temple or at the tabernacle at this point uh, you know they've made a treaty they they're, they're living in peace as far as we know and so it's just like so weird that Saul would do this until you take into consideration the character of Saul and, and what does Saul do Saul is always the guy who goes too far He's the guy who he's, you know, supposed to wait for Samuel to offer the sacrifice, but he can't wait. So he makes the sacrifice. He's the guy who, um, you know, he's going to make the rash foul. He, he's over, overly religious. We talked about this when we were talking about First Samuel. He's overly religious. He loves the forms. He likes to, to take those ritual things and just go a little too far with them. And so you can kind of see this in Saul that he would go, Well, you know, they didn't take it far enough when they made the conquest, which he was correct as far as these were people who should have been driven out. But since there was an oath, that oath needed to be honored because the name of the Lord had been invoked and the mm-hmm. oath had been made in the name of the Lord. And so, it, which is kind the of
1: definition of taking the Lord's name in vain.
2: Precisely. Precisely. And so, you know, you don't get to do that. And uh, so it's really it's a it's a difficult story to try to put in place unless you know the character of Saul, I think. But then, you know, even that still kind of leaves you wanting And I think really the point is the writer doesn't care about the specifics of the story. The writer cares that you get the point of David's story because that's really who the story is about. Yes, Saul did this. Saul's a major part of the setup, but we don't really care about why or how or when Saul did this. What we care about is what David's reaction is to what Saul has done and how it's impacting the kingdom he's taken over. And so, um, you know, there are a few uh, interesting uh, ideas about what may have happened. Uh, there's, and I wrote them down because I just like because I, I thought they were interesting. Uh, one is that Saul thought that the Gibeonites were basically stealing an opportunity to serve the Lord by being the ones who carried the water in the woods, so he wanted to be able to restore that joy to the people of Israel. Um, you know, that I've was actually
1: been... part of what I thought of. <laughs> I was...
2: You know, that's, but that's Saul. That's, I mean, it totally makes sense with the way his mind works. Um, Another possibility is that when Saul killed the priest at Nob, remember that was a big deal. Uh, David had gone to the holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, the priest had given him the showbread and the uh, sword of Goliath. And Saul was so angry, he had all of them killed. And so some say that he that at that time, because the Gibeonites were there at Nob, that they were kind of collateral damage in the attack. That makes sense on a certain level. Uh, another is that whenever he attacked the priest at Nob, basically he cut off the livelihood for the Gibeonites. And since they no longer had work, they no longer had a way to support themselves and to take somebody's livelihood according to the Talmud, Is the same as taking their life. And so that's a really interesting um, thought on how we deal with people. But anyway, what we do know for sure is that it happens at some time. We really don't know um, how or why it was happening. Uh, The writer doesn't care. And evidently, he doesn't think you should care. He wants you to focus on David. So verse 3. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement for that you may bless the, bless the heritage of the Lord? So, you know, Alter, Robert Alter, if you don't have a copy of his Bible, um, the translation he made of the Bible with the commentary, just get it. Um, as of right now, it's on sale, like a crazy good discount on Amazon. Uh, you won't regret it, but he's, he is so good at looking at the forms and the patterns and the structures of the way people talk and the way they're presented. And one of the things he picks up on in the speech is, this is not how the David of Samuel has spoken before. The David of Daniel, uh, I'm sorry, Samuel is very eloquent. He speaks kind of in these very ambiguous phrases. He, he does not lock himself into one position because he is very politically savvy. And so now this guy with talking here, I mean, this is very straightforward. This is very humble. This is not the David we've seen before. So Alter sees this as evidence that this section of Samuel was definitely written by somebody else. We talked about how that phrase that opened the, the, this passage that David went to seek the face of the Lord, not to inquire of the Lord, was also evidence that this was a different writer. And it could be the Bible never says Samuel was the one who wrote this. This was imposed by tradition. And if you want to look at some other uh, theories about who wrote Samuel, how it may have come together, we talked some of that about some of that at the beginning of this series. So you can go back and listen to that. But, um, you know... <sighs> This really begs the question, why is David having to atone for Saul's, Saul's actions? And that's really kind of at the core of this whole passage. Why is David doing this? Why is he the one addressing a wrong done to Saul? And you know, one very real possibility is that when we're looking at the structure of a nation, even though the person who is king may change, they're still the king. They're the mm-hmm. king of that nation. They're still representing that God. And so, just because Saul is no longer king, the king of Israel is still present.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So, it is David's problem. And, you know, we see this every four years. You know, somebody else gets voted into office and they ha- have to fix the problems that the last president fixed. And it, it happens every year. And if, you know, the last president did something that is working out to be good under the new president's um, administration, the new president claims uh, credit for it. And if it works out badly, the new president says, well, it's his fault. So you know, it still happens. Mm-hmm. As we, and, you know, I don't care, like I said, not taking sides or making any kind of political statement. This happens every single time. Um, or at least it seems to. Let me put it that way. So I mean, it's
1: happened every time I've seen it.
2: Yeah, it's his fault. Uh, but the you know, so the the issues of the old regime don't disappear just because you have a new leader. And I guess that's true of kings and presidents. And because the Gibeonites that that Saul killed, you know, they're still dead. Uh the family whose families who were left behind grieving, they're still grieving. And so to to leave the matter unaddressed really would say that you know, God isn't going to address it. It almost is like God gave his tacit approval if it goes unaddressed. And so even though there may not have been a chance to have it addressed under Saul's regime, under God's regime, which is, extends past David and Saul and, you know, both in the past and in the future, it goes beyond these two men, it has to be addressed. And so, um, you know, Bergen makes a very interesting observation that as King David cannot bless the Gibeonites himself, he can't just fix this. So he has to do something in order to change the Gibeonites' way of speaking about Israel, of viewing God, that would allow God to bless them. So basically, David says, if you want to be a part of this blessing under the Abrahamic covenant, here's what you've got to do. We've got to get you right so that now you can bless us as a nation. And when you bless us as a nation and you, you bless the heritage of the Lord, that's what that phrase is talking about when we find it in the book of Samuel, is now God can bless you. And so basically, David's saying, how can I put you in a position where God can bless you as a people? And so, uh, you know, if you go back to Abraham, God says, you know, I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And I thought that was a very interesting um, idea because I didn't think about that. You know, when I read through it this way, uh, I didn't see what Bergen was seeing in it, but it does make sense. So verse four, the Gibeonites said to him, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. So basically the Gibeonites say, hey, we're not looking for a payoff. That that's not what this is about. Uh, we, we don't need your money. We don't want some kind of legal compensation. It's not extortion. is basically what it boils <laughs> down to. right? Uh, you know, um, then they say something that's really interesting. And If you've read the rest of the chapter, you're going to know why it's interesting, because they say it's not for us to put any man to death in Israel. Well, you're going to find out, actually, they put several men to death. So what are they saying here? And so... Um, this is why most argue that they're saying one of two things. They're either saying we don't have the power or the authority to put someone to death in Israel, uh, which was not uncommon. If you were subjugated to a conquering nation, the, often the conquering nation, one of the limits they would say is you can't put – you can't uh, exercise um, – what am I trying to say? The, the, jurisdiction? No, it, it's you, – you can't execute people under your law. And that's that you, you as a subjugated nation cannot perform executions. We saw this with Rome whenever they were over Israel. Remember, they had to take Jesus to Pilate so that they could carry out the death penalty. Gotcha. So, yeah, so there's this, this idea that this was not an uncommon thing to do, and that may have been what happened with the Gibeonites in Israel. We don't know. Um, the other thing that is possible is they're saying, we don't want to just kill some random guy from Israel. We aren't just going to, you know, go, go grab somebody because he's Jewish and kill him. We actually want to deal with the guilty parties, which is kind of weird, too, when you think about what's getting ready to happen. Um, so there there is some some kind of question here going on. It is how smooth talking are the Gibeonites being? How, um, you know, are they being kind of conniving or are they really just laying out their case and saying, hey, this is what we want? It kind of depends on what you think of human nature. Uh, You know, how suspicious are you of them? Are are people, you know, do people bend their words this way? Do Are they just being real? Um, you kind of get to read into it. And I, I would hate to read further than what we have presented. So David said, what do you say that I shall do for you? Um, basically, a more literal translation is whatever you say, I will do for you. mm mm-hmm. I mean, that's not David. That's not the David we're used to. And so we, we kind of have to wonder what is happening here. Um, because David allows the Gibeonites to set their terms before he hears what they are. And he agrees to adhere to them before he knows what they are. So verse 5, And they said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, Let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul. And the king said, I will give them. Okay, here's where it gets really dark. Um, The Gibeonites, they don't use Saul's name, first of all. Uh, And we've already seen how whenever somebody doesn't use the other person's name, that this is kind of a, a term of contempt. You know, that man that man who attempted to consume us. Uh, they, they claim that he I mean, wanted we, we to consume.
1: I mean, we still see that today. I mean, mm-hmm. if, I mean, those of us who have kids out there, think of how many times you, your your spouse <laughs> has said, that child of yours. You know, it's, we, uh, we, we do this. We know what that means.
2: It just shows you people have not changed. And there are certain kind of uh, fundamentals of communication that, that carry through culture and time and so uh, but yeah they, they actually they point to the reason why Saul killed them which answers some of our previous questions Saul didn't want to give them room in the land of Israel he did not want them there um, those words in Hebrew for consume and destroy they kind of carry the same meaning of, of extermination And so, you know, it's completely wiping out. And, you know, this is the same word, the first one, at least for consume, it's the same word that Moses used um, at the golden calf when he was telling God, you know, don't exterminate Israel, you know, save them. Um, And destroy, we find that in Deuteronomy 127, when Israel refused to go into Canaan. And it's really interesting because in that particular verse, um, the... They're afraid of going to go into Canaan. Why? Because they're afraid of the Amorites, who are the Gibeonites, so the remnant of the Amorites. Uh, I don't think there's a major theological point to be made there, but I do find it to be interesting that this, this word, which isn't a real common word, gets used in connection to the Amorites once uh, against them and once by them. Uh, so I thought that was uh, unique. So the Gibeonites ask for um, seven of Saul's sons, now this number is totally symbolic, um, represents completeness, totality, wholeness. Um, it's reflecting the, to- the totality of Saul's extermination against the Gibeonites. It's kind of that quid pro quo without having to be a literal quid pro quo. So they, they symbolically kill the totality or the rest of, of Saul's house. Um, They specifically want to hang these men before the Lord in Saul's hometown. Um, You know, Saul had killed the Gibeonites where they lived, and now they want to go to Gibeah, which is where Saul's capital was, and they want to hang the people before the Lord. Uh, You know, David, he he just agrees. Uh, He doesn't negotiate. He doesn't say, hey, well, you know, we need to hold up here. Let's hear some caveats. Here's some things you can't do. Here's. You know, there's there's no boundaries. He, he's already said you can do whatever you want to do. And um, how you read this is really going to depend on what parts of the Torah you're going to apply. And uh, this might be disturbing for some people because it's going to seem like there's a lot of contradiction here. And honestly, there is. And I, I just want to lay it all out there because when I was reading commenta- uh, commentaries on this, one would like, oh, David was completely right because here's why and here's the, the verses he used to support this and, you know, the reasoning and the rationale. And then I could pick up another one and they would say, well, he was completely wrong and here's the reasoning and the verses and the rationale to, to show you this. And, you know, when, when you're told that you can't question the Bible or the Bible is completely inerrant and there's no contradiction and then you suddenly get confronted with this, if you're not used to these ideas, that's kind of overwhelming. Mm-hmm. A- and I know that even when I was in seminary and uh, went to Christian colleges, I would have friends and other students who the minute they encountered something like this, man, their faith was just decimated. Mm-hmm. Because everything that had um, they'd been taught was just being completely ripped apart. And how in the world can they trust God's Word if there are these problems. So we're going to look at what the problems are. I don't have a great answer. So let's just get that out there right now. Um, I'm still putting things together. I'm still trying to um, formulate what I think might be a solution. But honestly, in everything I'm reading, I'm not coming up with anybody who does have a great solution of what to do with this particular instance in David's life. And so all I can give you Is both sides of the argument, and I'll let, you know, everybody (laughs) wrestle it out for themselves. So um, if we read this negatively, if we say that David absolutely should not have done this, then we're going to cite Deuteronomy 24, 16. It says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So, obviously, this seems like a very clear violation of Torah. Mm-hmm. Deuteronomy 21, through 23 says, And if a man has committed uh, a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on him on the tree, his body shall not, shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. Where a hanged man is cursed by God, you shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. And we're going to find out later that, this, yeah, these men... Not only are they being taken to be hanged, they are actually left hanging for a a period of time. And we'll talk about how long that was. Uh, So in this episode, it seems that David is at least condoning two blatant violations of Torah. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the reasons, this might be one of the reasons why the writer makes such a point about the fact that these guys are not Israelites that uh, the Gibeonites, they're not Israelites, they're not under Torah. So therefore, they, they can do this. There's no violation of their law to do this. But David's participation is still very questionable. And why wouldn't he stop this? Now, um, if you want to read this positively, then you're going to cite Exodus 21, 33, Leviticus 24, 21 through 22. Deuteronomy 1921, which all of these passages call for a life for a life. So if there has been a murder, then you are to invoke the death penalty. You, you do not allow a murderer to go unpunished, not a malicious murderer, uh, because people are created in the image of God. And so you, people don't get to violate that image of God without there being some kind of consequence. And this does apply for sojourners who live among Israelites and absolutely the Gibeonites who had been right there with the Israelites with this treaty, a treaty, they were sojourners and they were under that same uh, law. But now the question is, if they're under that part of the law, do they also, are they under the part of the law that says that sons should not be killed for their father's sin? So this is why there's so, much debate and argument and what and I guess that's really not even correct because there's not even a debate it's just one side saying I'm right and the other side saying I'm right you know they're not not even
1: interacting with the material with the other person
2: yes exactly there's like there there's no kind of understanding between them and you know a lot of times when I say things are debated there is that interaction there is that room for conversation and that's one of the things I love about the academic circles is there is Debate, And there is this ongoing uh, back and forth that that happens until there is some kind of understanding that everybody can kind of be comfortable with or, you know, they believe is correct, even if it doesn't make them comfortable. Um, And so with with this, that's not even happening. So. uh, We'll continue and maybe we can find some more answers as we get further into our story. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord was between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So we know who Mephibosheth is. We, we talked about him previously. That is Jonathan's son. Uh, when Jonathan and Saul were killed, the, the nanny heard that David was going to be taking over the throne. She grabs the kid up. She jumps out a window. She, his feet are broken, and he's taken to Lodabar. Uh, where he he lives until David remembers the oath, and then he brings Mephibosheth back to his castle to um to eat at the king's table for the rest of his days. And of course, he just made that big appearance with the uh, Absalom's revolt, where um good old what's his face uh, had lied about him and said you never will you forget know, him, you never will forget him. Um, but you know, he was basically lied to, uh, lied about, and he had proven that you know you're my king you know, David, you're, you're the, the king. I'll do whatever you want. But, um, so David spares Mephibosheth is basically the point. And, um, you know, we already know that David has acknowledged upheld the oath, at least in regards to Mephibosheth. But on the other hand, so hold on, I'm getting ahead of myself my notes because we have a problem with the dating. Um, you know, This seems to suggest that this event happened after Mephibosheth was already with David, that David already knew he was alive. Because remember back in that story, the first one, David says, is there anyone still alive? You know, is anyone still, uh, still around? It sounds like he doesn't know. And so it sounds like he's already found Mephibosheth in this verse here. And he's already said, okay, yeah, I'm taking care of him. So I'm going to make sure he's okay. And, but then at the same time, the, there's this idea that maybe this happened before Mephibosheth was brought into Jerusalem, because David um, is like, is there anyone left? Is anyone still left alive? And maybe he wondered whether somebody, the rest of them were left alive because he killed seven of them already. And so this really doesn't help with our dating or our timeline, because you can make that argument both ways. And also, if you remember back when David was fleeing from Absalom, remember Shimei came out and said, you know, you you killed everybody from Saul's house, you're a bloody man, and, you know, how dare you, and you're an awful man who stole the the throne. Shimei could have been referring to this. So we, you know, the verse answers absolutely nothing, is basically what I'm saying. We we can, we got arguments um, both ways. So in verse 8, David takes two sons from Rizpah, Armoni and Mephibosheth. Now, this is a different Mephibosheth, but it is kind of interesting that he does kill a Mephibosheth, which kind of uh, some of the sages and, and scholars have kind of read into a little bit of a vicarious uh, action that David did wish Mephibosheth to be dead, the Mephibosheth in his courts to be just as dead mm-hmm. as the rest of them. So that's that is interesting. And then he took five sons from Merab, Saul's daughter. So these are actually Saul's grandsons. Now, um, this is kind of interesting to me because if you remember, we met Rizpah back at the beginning of 2 Samuel. Uh, she was uh, one of Saul's concubines. And um, Saul's son ish had gotten upset because he thought Abner had taken Rizpah to, to be his wife or concubine. And we talked about whether or not that that accusation was correct or whether ish was being paranoid. We we don't know, but, um, we, we have met her before. And, And if you think about what this woman has been through, she's the wife to the King of the nation. She's living in a Royal household. Then her husband gets killed her sons, the, the, the kids from uh, the other kids in the palace that she would have known and helped taking care of with the other wives, they're being killed. Um, she, she's probably having to flee for her life. Uh, she's become a political pawn between Ishbosheth and Abner. If Abner had taken her as a wife or concubine after Saul's death, uh, she's lost a second husband. Uh, you know, she, this woman's been through It's basically what I'm saying, and she's managed to survive. So she's not somebody to be taken lightly. And I, I think that you know, so often we, we get these names thrown out, and it's kind of like, Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. So her husband died. It's a big deal, okay? we We need to um, we, we need to be paying attention to these women's history and stop just acting like. They, they like they. They should just endure and accept whatever happens to them on the pages of this book. They, they should be allowed the space to have an emotional, uh, reaction. So, um, her two sons are killed, which you know for actions that they may or may not have been a part of. We're not really for sure. Uh, a lot of that's going to be dependent on age, and we're going to talk about age here in a second. But then we have another mother, um. Who the mother is, the second mother is, is going to depend on which translation you're reading, because some translations have Merab, and other translations have Michael. It really depends on whether the Bible you're reading used the Masoretic, which um, the Masoretic has Michael, or if they had the Septuagint as their base text, because the Septuagint has Marab. So here's, you know, one of those is wrong. Okay. That's just it. it, One of them cannot be correct. It's just that simple. So there is an error in your Bible. One of these Bibles somewhere, we just have to figure out which one, or maybe we just accept that, you know, people were involved in the process and mistakes were made. Now, if we do want to try to get to the bottom of this and figure out which one is probably the most likely correct, then we just need to look at some information we have. Uh, the simplest answer right off the bat, it's Merab. Um, we found out in 2 Samuel uh, 6.23 that there is, um, that Michael has no children. That after the events where David brought the Ark of the Covenant into uh, the city, and he had danced in his underwear in front of all the slave girls, and you know, he told Michael that famous line, "I'll become more undignified than this." Then she doesn't have any kids, you know. David, as far as we know, never, um, never fulfilled his husbandly obligations with her again. We also know that Adriel, the Mithilite who is said to be the husband of this particular mother, is listed as Merab's mother in 1 Samuel eighteen nineteen. So I think that basically we have a scribal error, that the person writing the Masoretic text was thinking, oh, it's one of Saul's daughter. It begins with a mem, and Michael is the most popular, and so he just put her name in. Um, you know, there's three of us sisters in our family. We all have names that begin with E, I can't count the number of times that people have said the wrong sister's name just because it's an E and it gets stuck. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not convinced her own mother knows that my name is Emily. So I, mean, that's, that's how easy it is to make that, that distinction. Cause yeah, every time she calls me, it's L M air M. So anyway, we have to get a running start at it. But so you, know, I, I think it's that simple. I I like simple solutions. I don't like convoluted solutions when we're talking about the biblical text. I think, I think that basically we have human beings um, who they're writing this by hand. And when you're copying something by hand, you know, sometimes you just space out it. it, Why does it need to be some kind of convoluted um, conspiracy? But you know, hey, the rabbis, uh, that's what they like to do. So they basically said, you know what? Hey, so Michael never had any biological children. Absolutely. That's what the Bible says. We're going to uphold that, but the Bible, the Masoretic text says Michael, so it has to be Michael. So we have to figure out a way to make Michael a mother. So what they do is they have Merab die off, Marry Marab's husband, and she becomes the adoptive mother of Marab's children. And as the adoptive mother of Marab's children, now she, Michael, is the mother of these five boys. And that answers all the questions. So it's not really Marab, it is Michael, and there is no mistake. I I think that's working a little too hard, honestly. Um, And it doesn't make sense from the perspective of, Michael was married to David. What's the one thing we know that happens that does not happen according to the books of Samuel? The wives and the former wives of a king are not just handed off to some random guy. You you don't get to just marry off these women to somebody else. So if David's still alive. Michael is certainly not going to be handed off to another man. Matter of fact, when she had been married off to another man. What does David do? He goes and gets her. He has her brought to the castle. He returns her back to his home because you cannot have the wife or the one-time wife of the King off living with some other guy. That's a political statement. No King can afford. So Mm -hmm. that's the reason why I am a fan of the simple explanation. It, It keeps up with all of our cultural, uh, conditions, terms and conditions, but at the same time, it, it it just makes sense. So now the most disturbing part of the story, as far as I'm concerned, is we're looking at young men. These are not, you know, warriors the same age as David. Um, Zamora did the math. Uh, the oldest child of Merab would have been barely 10 years old when Saul died, so he could not have been a part of whatever action Saul took against the Gibeonites. And that means all the younger kids definitely couldn't have been apart. And, you remember, we know specifically that Mephibosheth, he's five years old when Saul and Jonathan die. And he's a grown man by the time David finds him. So, you know, these events, you know, if these events happened uh, around the same time, all of those that were killed, that all the, those that were involved in the, the massacre of the Gibeonites would have had to have been dead and gone or you know, thrown by this point is what I'm trying to say. All the indications is we've got young men, we've got teenagers, 20-something-year-olds maybe by this point. We, we, mm-hmm. And the reason why there's a question is we don't know where in David's reign this happened. So we're, we're having to kind of do some guesswork. The point is they're, they're not old enough to have been involved, and they weren't very old when they were killed. So verse 9, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together, and they were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. So um, more questions, because this is Samuel. This is what we have with this book. Uh, What does it mean to be hanged? Uh, Is this hung by the neck by a rope? Uh, Maybe. Uh, Is it hanging as in a crucifixion? Maybe. Uh, Is it being impaled? Probably most likely, but it's not 100% um, certain. Is this the means of execution? Or is this simply how the bodies are displayed after the execution? So... A lot of questions in what seems to be a very simple verse. Uh, honestly, I read every explanation. There, were, Most of them acknowledge that there's a problem here. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no consensus. I mean, and like most of the commentaries will tell you, there is no consensus. Now, leaving the bodies exposed and being hung out to you know, be on display. Uh, Alter points out that this is the final act of desecration. This is basically, you are not a person. Uh, this is a direct attack on this person's um, image of God, that that, that they are being um, so degraded that in death, they're not even allowed to retain that that image of God. And it was probably why God forbids the the bodies being left on display. Right. That's part of the Torah. You, you don't do it. I read that verse from Deuteronomy. Uh, nightfall, uh, you, you take the bodies down. And, and, you know, the image of God is a really huge issue and aspect of the teachings, particularly the gospel. Uh, if you want to get more into that, uh, Joshua Sherman in Tending Our Nets, I mean, he, he's ta- doing a whole series on that, uh, and so good. And you should just turn over and listen to that because it does have implications for us today. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of what this attack is. So the, the Gibeonite, they, they hang these people before the Lord. Um, the Lord who specifically says, don't do that. Um, this is one of those frustrating times when the Bible really focuses on what did happen without really giving us a good explanation of what happened or why it happened. There's there's no explicit or implicit critique of what the Gibeonites did. Um we aren't told what their thought process is. We're just told that David allows it. And so, you know, like I said, you can always tell when an issue confuses the scholars because they ignore it. And if you go to a commentary and there's like, just basically they reworded the verse. They didn't offer anything new. They just, they just took and mixed up the word order and said the same thing that the verse said. And if you read, you already knew what they had to say,
1: yeah, which is more frustrating than them just skipping it.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, that means they have no clue what to do with it. Um, and they're really hoping that you didn't notice that they didn't know what to do with it. So that's what happens with this story. I, there there really isn't a whole lot of commentary. Um, Alter offers like a tiny bit, and he, he basically says, you know, because the, the, they're hung before the Lord, that this is a sacrificial killing, but God doesn't allow for human sacrifice. That's kind of one of the points made in the Akedah, the Binding of Isaac.
1: Yeah, well, and that's uh, that's one of the questions that I really have here because this seems very much like a human sacrifice to to like one of the, like kind of mirroring like something that might have been done for one of the local weather gods. Yeah, and that's that's part of the reason this. I mean, if you've been paying attention, uh, th- that's part of the reason this passage is disturbing because mm-hmm. you also have. I mean, especially if you want to get really into it, you're talking about David offering up a punishment for the sons of Saul. Well the thing is all of Israel's being punished mm-hmm. for the sins of Saul and right. uh, and so you've got a was a 3 year famine going on mm-hmm. and then the solution is to you know of course the solution is to to ask what what there is for for restitution but then it seems like the answer is to to human sacrifice, sacrifice human sacrifice <laughs> and then to further compound the problem it seems as though the that God's okay with it because at the end of the story He sends rain.
2: Yeah. So what do you do with the story?
1: <laughs> it's mean, very confusing, and I have a lot of questions. Uh,
2: I, I, I think anybody who who reads the Bible seriously does. I mean, this, this seems so out of place and so counter. And you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it essentially, on the surface, at least, uh, and. From everything I've seen, it does look like human sacrifice. And specifically, it looks like the sacrifice of of the house of Saul. Mm -hmm. And what's really disturbing about it is David chooses who's going to die. He he doesn't, you know, just say, okay, yeah, they attack back. David specifically says, this is who we're going to send. And who does he send? He sends the guys who would have stood in line to inherit the throne. So is this David cleaning house? You know, the only person he leaves alive is Mephibosheth, who is disqualified because he's crippled. Mm -hmm. So this is very disturbing. And Brueggemann flat out calls it as far as the way he reads it. He thinks this is David saying, I'm going to use this as an excuse to basically ignore the oath I made to Saul and Jonathan, which would have said, hey, you know, I'm not going to kill your your family. I'm going to leave everyone alive because we're friends. And so... Yeah, really, really disturbing story. So we're going to keep going. And again, we're going to try to find some answers. I'm working, uh, you know, I'm working ahead. And I've got some, some notes ahead, but I still haven't found anything that just, I go, ah, that's it. You know, there, there's times that you're looking for an answer with a disturbing passage and You'll finally read something, you'll, you'll see something the right way, the light will bounce off of it right on the page, you know, and you'll, you'll understand it. I have not had that moment with this story yet, so I'm just yeah. going to be honest. And again, we're putting the general <laughs> call out there.
1: If you have information on this, please, please, please let us know.
2: Uh, absolutely. So um, the, the other detail in this verse, the final detail, is, this is the first days of the barley harvest. So that's sometime mid-April okay so this this is uh important because we're going to have a a timeline here that is also debated so we need to know what we can set as you know what parts can we avoid debating and what we can avoid the debate on is this is uh you know mid-april this is the barley harvest and we're going to talk about why that's important um so We're going to go into verse 10 and we're just going to to break this one up because there's a lot of information. It says, Then Rispa, the daughter of Eah, took the sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the rain fell upon them from the heavens. So basically she makes her a makeshift shelter. She takes sackcloth. This is the traditional uh, cloth that people would wear while they were mourning the death or grieving the death of a loved one. so basically, she, she makes a home in grief and mourning. And I, I thought that was kind of uh, very, um, almost poetic. But this is a sunshade. This is not something that's going to give her any kind of shelter from rain or sleet or snow. Uh, we're looking at April here. We're looking, um, the, the spring rains are stopping, basically, is what's going on here. Uh, so she's, she's got her um, got her some, some sunshade. And I w- have to wonder if there's any kind of connection here also to, to Jonah and his sunshade um, when he was looking over Nineveh and padding. Uh, and I haven't gone into that, but I think there might be interesting to kind of look at that um, if somebody wants to do so. So then it says in verse 10, it says, and she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field or not. Okay. What she is doing is incredible. Okay. This is what I'm talking about when we talk about just blowing by these verses and and not paying attention to. She does not allow the birds of the air. Okay. This is vultures. This is ravens. This is crows. This is any bird of prey because they're all, every bird of prey is a scavenger when given the opportunity. There are seven bodies in the, you know, they're, they've got to have some space between them. She is out there all day long. If you've ever watched a bird go after a food source, they are not easily deterred okay they <laughs> they are determined and I
1: mean no I know you're reminding me okay i I used to work up in the city and if you've ever been in Oklahoma City, actually a lot of large cities kind of have there's like this window of time to leave for for work and if you mm-hmm. leave like if you leave at this certain time, you're going to get to work half an hour early. If you leave five minutes later, you're going to get there 15 to 30 minutes late because of traffic. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just how it works out. So I used to go and sit in the parking lot and watch or or read a book usually. But one morning I got there and someone had left an entire pizza in the parking lot. (laughs) And there was this crow uh, trying to, to protect it and fight off this flock of seagulls. Mm-hmm. And it was so funny. And it was actually a couple crows in, and, and they and it was funny because one of, one of the birds would you know come up on it and then another one would sneak up behind it and pull its tail feathers. And that bird would swoop around, would spin around and another, then the other bird would go in and, grab hold of its grab hold of a piece of pizza while that one was distracted and at one point i look up and there is a seagull flying by with an entire slice of pizza hanging out of its mouth and it was just one of the funniest things i've seen um so yeah we, if you've to, 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 if you've ever seen that happen it is quite amusing um, it's
2: probably not so much in this context uh, well yeah but yeah this is probably
1: very but they're but the birds are very aggressive is i think the point that we're trying to make and yeah. not just not just with uh each other but i'm sure they would even they, they even would you know get on some people too they, they tend to be aggressive.
2: well you know i i once uh rode up on uh one of the hawks had had killed one of our grandmother's chickens and I rode my bicycle up her driveway and was there in time to see the hawk on the chicken and I was trying to like save the chicken and that hawk was completely trying to take me on I mean this is a wild bird and he's got his you know wings spread out and he's making noises at me because how dare I try to I mean I was probably like eight or nine at the time so you know not too intimidating well and grandma
1: grandma kept the chickens well fed those were some Mm -hmm. that would have been a pretty good meal for that hawk
2: (laughs) yeah for like weeks yeah and so so you know the these birds are i mean this is not um this is closer to alfred hitchcock's birds than sesame street birds is pretty much you know this is so and for seven you know to to do this with seven bodies this woman never stopped she she could not have stopped anytime she would have taken a break they would have been right back in there but then the beast at night okay <laughs> we're talking bears we're talking lions we're talking leopards we're talking actually a whole host of wild large cats that live in this area um jackals I mean she's not Running off rats or mice, she's running off serious predators. And you know, remember David convinced Saul, "Hey, I can take on Goliath. Why can I take on Goliath? Because I face these animals. This is what makes me a great warrior." And so here's this woman who is basically doing what David did for the sheep, and she's doing it for the these loved ones. Because even though uh, Merab's sons were not her sons. They would have been her, her half-grandsons. I mean, they're, they're still part of the family. She probably would have known them. And so, you know, David is taking on a task. I mean, sorry, Rizpah is taking on a task that's on par with anything David has done as far as taking care of being a shepherd and, and watching over flocks and, and pr- defending the, the uh, vulnerable and the helpless. Mm-hmm. And so Bergen actually says Rizpa represents perhaps the supreme expression of maternal loyalty in the Bible. And um, we're going to talk about why she did this because her primary goal and what she's doing is she knows she cannot stop the flesh from rotting. That's not what she's trying to do. She's trying to preserve the bones. Preserving the bones is a big deal. And so Uh, we're going to talk about uh, that and we'll talk about that more in the next episode. But, um, you know, I just, man, this woman, uh, I just think it's too easy to, to read that and go, okay, she kept the birds away. She kept the beast away. No, she was keeping serious predators away. She was working hard. And how long did this last? Because there's some good indication that it could have actually been a matter of months that she did this. And we're going to talk about, um, whether that's a correct reading or not and how that's going to impact how we view what's going on here. So anyway, I'm going to call it quits right there and we'll finish up the story probably next week. And then we're actually going to look at chapter 24 some too. So see if that helps us understand a little better.
1: Okay. Well, that seems to work. So I hope so. We'll give it a shot. Yeah. Well, there's, (laughs) there's lots of, definitely lots to think about here i'm i still don't have all my questions answered that i wanted answered but maybe you'll find it between either. now and next week so i hope so <laughs> you, you're good with that you know do that in a week you know where people have been arguing for centuries just wrap it all up
2: sure yeah No. not a problem no pressure <laughs> i got it <laughs> so,
1: all right well hey everyone out in the internet world um Hopefully, you enjoyed this. And if you did, please uh, share this with a friend. Uh, write us a review on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever it is you get your uh, fine quality <laughs> or other quality podcast. Um, let people know what you think. And uh, in the meantime, if you want to be part of the conversation, uh, hit us up on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram at Raven Creek SC. Uh, if you want to get uh, more direct contact, you can hit the uh, contact page on ravencreeksc.com and uh, just send us an email and let us know if you have any questions, comments, or if there's anything in here that you think that uh, we're missing. Um, or like I said, <laughs> you know, anytime we we uh, have information that we, we kind of go, oh, we don't know what to do th- with this. If you have information we don't have, send it our way. We'll be glad to take a look at it.
2: Absolutely. I'm always loving new information. Yes. That most things.
1: Uh, Fair enough. So (laughs) that being said, um, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye.
0: (laughs) You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.